All right, my friends, it is seven o'clock straight up. Let's open in prayer. Well, God, I thank you for this one hour that uh, you've allowed us to gather to study your word, and we pray that it accomplishes its purpose in our hearts, that it would um, work in us and change us to be closer to the people that you've called us to be as followers of yours, and we ask for that this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're studying through the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. Really, we're going to get through 1 and 2 Thessalonians in these 10 weeks. So open your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we are going to cover the entire chapter 2 tonight. At least that's our goal. Uh, the, the New Testament includes lots of different um, comparisons of Christians. Sometimes Christians are compared to, you know, the whole the vine and the branches, and then you have the, uh, the body in, in Corinthians. And then in Ephesians, you have uh, Christians are a building, you know, all the blocks being put together. And tonight, Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 includes another comparison of Christians. Tonight, it's Christians are a family. Christians are a family. And all of those, the body and the building and the vine and the branches and family, all all speak to the interconnectedness, the closeness, the unity, the, the being bound together. And so I hope you see that tonight. We're going to read the entire chapter and see if you can notice the familial aspect of this chapter, and then we'll go through it verse by verse. So let's start in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and had been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid such opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness." Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother, there's one member of the family, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we are well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as You know how we are exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would of his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, now we have another one, we have mothers and we have fathers, now we have brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus 
and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they would be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or, or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord and Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. All right, let's go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 1. And it's kind of started at the beginning there. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Vain meaning a waste of time. It wasn't a waste of time to come to you. Paul already knew that there were all sorts of accusations that were being levied against him, particularly levied against him at Jason's house. You remember Jason? Jason is the guy who let Paul use his garage for, uh, for this new home church that he was starting. And Paul knew that there were a lot of accusations that were being levied against him. And one of those probably was that this, all this drama, all the issue, all the things that we experienced were just a sheer waste of time. And Paul says, it wasn't a waste of time because, verse 2, because after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. It wasn't a waste of time because we got to share with you the gospel. It wasn't a waste of time because we got to tell you that, that you've been looking for the Messiah, rightly so, and he has come. It was Jesus, the one that you've heard about. He was God in the flesh, and you are separated from God because of your own sin, and you knew that. That's why you were looking for the Messiah, and Jesus is the one who has died for your sins. He rose from the grave, and so he said it wasn't a waste of time. I got to share with you the gospel. Talking about the gospel of Jesus is never a waste of time. Whether you lead someone to Christ in the moment is irrelevant. There's never wasted moments when you're talking about Jesus. Paul says it's not a waste of time. I got to share with you the gospel. It has nothing to do with how many times people pray to accept Christ right in front of your face. Numbers are not the litmus test for determining if your ministry is effective. It's never a waste of time to share the gospel of Christ. However, here in this case... Quite a few people did put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, even though there was a lot of drama, it was not a waste of time. You got saved, equaling no waste of time, all right? And it says in there, it mentions this thing, we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. So here's the story that that's referencing. Paul went into Philippi just like he did in any other city, and he started his ministry. And there was this girl that was demon-possessed. And every day, Paul would be out there doing his ministry, preaching the good news of Jesus. And this girl would get up and just start yelling. And it really kind of made Paul mad. He was kind of perturbed. And so that's not exactly the word that uses uses in the Bible, but that's what it was. The actual word that the Bible uses is annoyed. Paul was annoyed. So he goes over to this girl that's demon-possessed, and he casts the demon out. Get out of here, get out of here, demon. And so you think, well, that's a good thing. Why is he referencing that story with suffering? 
Well, what happened from that was the, the people who owned the girl, you can kind of get an idea of how sadistic the culture was, the people who owned the girl, that was their income, was the freakiness of the girl that people would pay to come see the weird things that the weird girl could do. And so as soon as that demon was cast out, now they have no income. And so they go to the sheriff and say, hey, arrest that guy. And they said, okay. And so Paul and Silas, they get arrested because they cast out the demon of this girl. He gets thrown in jail. And guess what happens in jail? The guy running the jail gets saved. And so he says, it's just the same thing. Just like it was there, it was all sorts of problems, it was all sorts of difficulty, but I got to preach the gospel. It was not a waste of time, and just because it was a little bit difficult being in jail wasn't a problem. The, the difficult thing was actually the right thing at that point in time. Now, I realize that I'm still young, at least compared to some of you, and I know that <laughs> I, know that I have a lot to learn. My wife teaches me that often that I have a lot to learn. But one of the things that I have learned is this truth that Paul is talking about is the easy things are rarely the right things to do. If it's easy, it probably isn't the right thing. If it's easy to ignore your kid's disobedience in the moments because you're just tired, that's not the right thing to do. If it's easy to avoid the conversation that you know you really should have with someone at work, that's probably not the right thing to do. The, and in reverse, the right things that you should do are usually the hardest things on the list. You know, the things that are right are usually the hardest. And Paul says, hey, it was hard, but who cares? It certainly wasn't a, a waste of time. And then in verse 3, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. It almost kind of get the flavor or the taste that he's beginning to defend himself here, and that's because he is. He's starting to defend himself because there's a lot of accusations that have been made uh, against Paul. You know, Satan always tries to attack or to uh, limit the effectiveness of anybody who's sharing the, the gospel, of anyone who's uh, talking about Christ, of anybody who's being a bright light. And so if you feel like you're kind of being opposed and things are getting difficult for you, well, that's what Satan tries to do, limit the effectiveness of people who are bright lights for Jesus. Well, if he can't do it with persecution, and he was doing a lot of that, another way that he does that is to attempt to discredit the person, essentially limit their effectiveness by people doubting the message that they bring, questioning the wisdom of the person who is bringing, calling into question the integrity of the, of the person. And so that was what was happening with Paul. Satan was trying to get at Paul in this kind of this backdoor route by accusing Paul of a whole lot of things. There's a list of seven here that he is defending himself against. And so verses 3 to 6 are the seven things that Paul is defending himself against. So let's read these specifically together, and I want you to see if you can catch the seven things that Paul is defending himself against, saying, I didn't come because of these things, but this is what they're saying about me. It says, for our exhortation in verse 3 does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, 
nor with a pretext of greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as the apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Okay, so there are seven different things that Paul is saying, this is not the reason that we showed up. Okay? The first one is all the way back in verse 3. What do you think the first thing is that Paul's defending himself against there in verse 3? Error. You got it. For our exhortation does not come from error. That word is the idea of being sincerely mistaken, that Paul had good intentions, that he was just mistaken, that he really was a good guy, but he just had some stuff wrong. That's the idea of error. You know, Paul really was a good guy. He, he had good intentions. Just, he just had some things wrong. And Paul said, uh-uh. I didn't come because I just had good intentions and I had some things wrong. What's the second thing that he is defending himself against? Impurity. Impurity has the idea of having some good in it and some tainted in it. Some good gold and some metals that aren't gold and an impure mix. Some good, some bad. The idea here is that he was being accused of the half-truths, the some good, the, the some bad. You're not getting the full story. You know, yeah, Paul's a good guy, but he's only telling you half the truth. You're not getting the full story of what he's bringing. Paul says, I didn't, I didn't come to bring you half the truth. There's a third thing that he is defending himself against. What's the third one in verse 3? Okay, deceit. Now, you know what that means. You know, that means straight out trickery, baiting the hook, that Paul was uh, selling something that he didn't really have, that he was the used car salesman of religiosity. Paul says, I didn't come like that. I didn't, I didn't come with good intentions, but had the wrong message. I didn't come with half-truths. I didn't come with the, with the goal to deceive you. The fourth one is in verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men. So what's the third one? Or fourth one, sorry, four, that's fourth. We didn't come to please men, to serve people. And you might be wondering, well, what is this talking about? Well, these are all Jews who are making these accusations. These are the Jews in Thessalonica that didn't get saved when Paul went to the synagogue and all that. And they show up at Jason's house and they're levying all these accusations against Paul, with Paul really not even being there. And they know about that church way on the other side of the map in Jerusalem. They know that that church had already commissioned Paul to make these mission trips. They knew that. And so what they're saying is, is he's not really here because he has his own passion for you. He's just here to please all the people back at the mother church. He's just here because he was commissioned to do this. This isn't his own thing. This is really their thing that he's following through on. Paul says, that's not why I'm here either. I'm not here to, in error. I'm not here with half-truths. I'm not here to sell something I don't have. And I'm also not here to please men. Verse 5 is the fifth one. For we never came with flattering speech. And the idea here is we didn't come just because we were great speakers. You know, we, we're not a, on a speaking tour. You know, hey, go to the Fox Theater. Tickets are $500. There's going to be a line around the building. Come here, Pastor Nathan Pree. It's going to be so good. People are going to be waiting in line for that. And he says, no, no, no. I didn't come on a speaking tour. I don't have the kind of speech that is going to enamor people. That's not why I came for this whole thing. 
The sixth one is also there in verse 5. Not only cometh with flattering speech, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. Okay, this was some of the very first accusations of being a televangelist right here. <laughs> that he was just coming to earn money. That this was just a job that he had, and he was just here to earn money. He says, I didn't come for that reason either. And then we finally get to the seventh one in verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. We didn't come here to, because we wanted the limelight. We didn't come here because we like people to follow us. We didn't come here because we liked the stage. We didn't come here because we needed um, people to lead. And, well, it looks like we found some people that we could lead. It wasn't any of those things. It wasn't any of this list. We didn't come in error, being good intentions, but wrong message. We didn't come with half-truths. We didn't come because we wanted to bait and switch somebody. We didn't come because this was someone else's passion. Uh, we didn't come because we're trying to earn money. We didn't come because we're great speakers. We didn't come because we want the limelight. We didn't come for any of those reasons. And so he sets up this whole long uh, defense of why he didn't come. So why did he come would be the next question. Well, the next half of the chapter is going to tell us why. I mentioned that the New Testament has all these different comparisons for Christians, you know, the vine and the branches and the body and the, a building being put together and also the, the family. That's the one that Paul gets to tonight. And all these different metaphors that Paul uses all are the, the oneness, the interconnectedness, the unity um, that is a part of them all. And so Paul says, I didn't come to Thessalonica because I was mistaken, because I had half-truths, uh, I was only giving you half the story, I was trying to hoodwink you and, and uh, hook you on something that I didn't really have to sell, I didn't have a passion for money, I wasn't trying to please other people, this is my own passion. He didn't come for all these things, but he came to be a nurturing mother, a, a father who modeled, a father who mentored, a father who was a, an example and a brother, the, the family aspect. And so that's the three aspects that we're going to break this next part of the chapter up in. And so verses 7, 8, and 9, he addresses his position as a nurturing mother. And so look at verse 7. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Now, obviously, this is a metaphor um, because... Paul isn't actually <laughs> a nursing mother <laughs> for a whole lot of reasons. But he's addressing what was culturally then and is even still a cultural thing now, though not necessarily too popular in the U.S., is the idea of a, a wet nurse, a nursing mother. And in that era, these wet nurses had very detailed contractual requirements that they were so closely tied with the family, so much so that these women would often become a part of the family and would influence that child, not just in the, the wet nurse aspect, but would influence that child all the way through their childhood, all the way up until they left the house. And Paul says, I, I, I came like that. I came to, to care with you about that. He uses the word there, um, like a, um, a nursing mother tenderly cares 
for her own, own children. He came and he cared about them. He wasn't trying to sell them on something. He, he wasn't trying to get their money. Uh, he, he wasn't for the limelight. It's because he cared about those people. Verse 8, it says, having so fond an affection for you. Mothers have a fond affection for their babies, and it doesn't even take one minute for a mother to have a fond affection for her baby. As soon as that baby is delivered, that mom holds her baby and loves that baby. That baby hasn't done anything for the mom. That baby hasn't paid her any money. That baby didn't buy her a car. That baby didn't obey nothing. The mom knows the baby human breathing for one minute, and she already has this fond affection for this baby. And Paul was like that. Paul was only in that city for a very short period of time. If you remember the history of how this church got started, he was there for a very short period of time, but he had already, just like a, a mother, had developed a deep love for those people. I mean, a mom loves a baby. That baby cries. That baby keeps the mom up all night. Sometimes a dad, if we can't put our earplugs in hard enough. That, that baby smells up the house with diapers. You got to take the trash out as soon as it happens. And yet mom doesn't care. Mom doesn't care about any of that. And Paul says, that, that's me. I have a fond affection for you. I don't care about the dirtiness, the messiness of everything that happened there. I love you like that. I didn't come to sell you on something. I didn't come with half-truths. I didn't come to shyst you out of something. I came because I loved you very, very much. And it says, having such a fond affection for you, we are well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives. The word impart is to share, meaning I have part of it and, and I give give it to you. And so now we both have it. You know, it's like the girls that share those little, um, the friend necklaces, you know those? It's a circle and it's like broken down the middle. And so one girl gets one and the other girl gets the other half of the circle, you know? And so when you put them together, oh, we're friends forever, you know, like that. <laughs> and so that's imparting where I, I impart half of my friend necklace to you and now I have part myself. And so we share in this together, not only in the gospel, but it says also in our own lives. We shared our lives with you, and you shared your lives with us, and so you've become very dear to us. And it says, for you recall, brethren, our labor and and hardship, and how working night and day so as not to burden any of you, we proclaim the gospel to you. Now, in this culture to the Greeks or to the Gentiles, they like manual labor was something that only a slave would do. And Paul says he doesn't care about any of that. He, he comes and he serves and he sacrifices and he does like a mom would do whatever it takes to have a healthy baby. That's how moms do it. They sacrifice it all. Hard labor, hands and knees, whatever it takes, dirt, grime, grunge, whatever it takes. And Paul says, I was like that. Even so much so that working night and day so as not to burden you. Um, Did you know that Paul, just like in Corinth, Paul didn't ask for money in this church? That doesn't mean that he couldn't have or shouldn't have, but he just didn't here, probably because he was there for such a short amount of time, and he didn't probably have enough time to worry about that, getting kicked out of the city so quick. Um, And this church also had very tumultuous persecution that happened after it. But other churches, 
um, would send Paul money or collect money for Paul, but he didn't ask for that here. During the day, he made tents. He sewed together canvas and put you know, leather straps on the edges, and that's what he did all day so that on the evenings and weekends, he could pastor and lead this church. And the Thessalonians didn't notice or care about that one bit. It just kind of just completely flew over their observation, just like probably it did for you when you were a kid and when you were a teenager. Did you ever notice the things that your parents did for you when you were a teenager? No. But your mom or your parents did that for you because they loved you, because they had this firm affection for you, no matter what your response was or no matter what you did for them, they did that for you. And so Paul first says here that uh, he's, he's like a loving mother. Uh, he cares for them very deeply. And there's a lot of sacrifice that sometimes comes with that kind of care. Remember, Paul was on a commission trip, but the commissioning wasn't from the Jerusalem church exactly. It was from Jesus Christ. It was a great commission. You're to take this message of Jesus to all the people, not just the Jews in Jerusalem, all around the known world. And so that's where he was part, somewhere in the known world at this point in time. And he made great sacrifices for every single place that he went to. But that's not just Paul. Same is true for us, that there are sacrifices that you are going to make as a believer for fulfilling or following through on your calling in the Great Commission to share Jesus with other people, be a bright light to, to other people. It will cost you something, things that you don't necessarily want to do, things that you may not be looking forward to. <laughs> this just happened in my family like this last weekend in not a good way on my part. Um, I had to recalibrate my brain. We're always meeting new families. You know, right now we're in the age of meeting a lot of uh, families from Caleb and Noel's friends. You know, they're in all sorts of sports, after-school activities, all that. So we meet all their parents. And so the parents just sit around for hours waiting for them to do their thing, and the parents end up talking. And so we ended up meeting um, parents of one of the people that are on one of the teams. And they're not believers. Didn't expect them to be. I mean, this guy, he's cussing. He's uh, talking all about himself the entire time about, oh, I did, you know, I did this. And blah, 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 blah. I'm just like, oh, my goodness, you know. How long do I have to listen to this guy talking about how great he is? You know what I mean? The, the only benefit is I didn't have to talk. So I guess that, that was a good thing. And at the end of that conversation, they're like, oh, it's so good to get to know you guys. They didn't know us one bit, but so good to get to know you guys. We want to have your family over for a, a barbecue. We have a pool in the backyard. Come on, it'll be great. And in the back of my mind, I'm glad it didn't come out my mouth. I'm thinking, I do not want to spend one more minute with you, you know? You ever have those moments, you know? And so I get in the car, and I just look at Tanya, and she knows exactly what I'm thinking, you know? I do not want to go over to their house and spend another two hours doing that. Then I backed off that pretty quick. We're going because of this. God put them in front of us or us in front of them for a reason, and for some reason, they felt comfortable to be themselves around us. And I didn't ask for it, but they were comfortable, and they need friends, obviously. I mean, they met, if they're asking me to be their friend, they definitely are desperate for, they're desperate for something. But they need a friend. I really don't have much to offer, but I could be their friend, you know? These are the types of, in a funny way, the types of sacrifices that we make to be light to people, to, to spread the gospel, to be a nurturing mother to some family that needs some nurturing that doesn't really even know it yet. 
Um, so there's always a sacrifice when you are taking the gospel somewhere in, in various ways. Um, we could continue with the application of that, but we need to move on. The second thing, not only a nurturing mom, but also a father who models or a, a father who demonstrates or a father that mentors. That's in verses 10 to 12. Uh, it, it, the idea even begins in the first three words where it says, you are witnesses, meaning Paul said it, but you've already seen it in me. I've already modeled it for you. You are witnesses of the things that I'm saying, that the things that are coming out of his mouth have already been witnessed by you. You've already seen that happen. And this was a big deal for Paul. Uh, you know, Paul calls himself the spiritual father of Timothy, because he was modeling a, a life for Timothy. And there are two books that are about his modeling of his life for Timothy. And Paul even says in, in uh, two books before this one, you don't tr- you have to turn to it, I'll just read you one verse from Philippians 4, uh, 4 9. It says, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Okay? The things that you learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul. Now, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The things that you learned and received and heard in me, I'm the model for you. I've modeled it for you, so now you just go do those things. And if you go do those things, yeah, you're following me, but really you're following Jesus as you're following me. Paul was a a model, a father who, who modeled. And so it says, you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we are exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom. In the, the Jewish culture of this day, really it's still the same way, they still copy it, still today, that boys 12 and under were taught at the knee of their mother. In, in Judaism, you were, you were free from the law. You were innocent. But at 13, you became a son of the law. And then you didn't sit at the knee of your mother and be taught by your mother. You went to go learn from your dad. You went to go work with him. You watched the way that he lived his life. And so the mothers were the teachers and the, the dads were the modelers. Mom taught it, dad showed it. Mom taught it, dad showed it. And it works great when you have a married couple that are on board with that. That's great. And sometimes things break down when one of the two isn't willing to uh, play their role in that way. But that was the idea. Mom would teach it, and then dad would model it. It would, it would move you from just hearing and knowing about it to the doing aspect of this entire thing. And so dads who were wise enough uh, would understand that their kids were at different ages, and at those different ages, they would model different things for their kids as they began to develop in, in their life. And Paul says, I, I came to be a model. I showed you how you should do it at your young age, and then when you get a little older, I'm going to send you letters like this to help you know how to develop your life at a little older age spiritually, you know. Uh, Tanya and I took uh, the Growing Kids God's Way class here at Grace Community Church. It's taught by Pastor Chuck, his wife Joanne. They survived three boys, so I figured he's a pretty good one to teach this thing. And so we took it when our kids were really 
young. And it is a great class. If you have kids still in the house, you need to take this thing. We're going to probably have it in 2020, just next year. So Growing Kids God's Way taught Tanya and I a lot of things about being a parent and particularly being a father for me. But that one of the things that stands out most in my mind is the funnel of freedom. That's what I call it, the funnel of freedom or the, the cone of freedom. I changed my oil with this, so um, <laughs> hopefully nothing drips out. All right. But the idea of the, the funnel of freedom in Growing Kids God's Way is that the, the younger the child is, the, the less freedoms that they have. From zero to five, very few freedoms of their own. You know, mom tells them when to go to bed, when to wake up, what to wear, what to eat. You eat it. I don't care if you don't like it. You know, zero to five. But then as kids get older and older, parents begin to open up the freedoms for their age-appropriate freedoms. And so their kids are begin to learn what it's like to have certain freedoms. And so, you know, at 8, you get some more freedoms, and at 10, you get some more freedoms, and at, and at 13, you get some more freedoms. And you begin to open up more and more. You let the leash out, you know, with your kid a little bit further, a little bit further, and a little bit further. And so it was this picture. Right now, Tanya and I are right in that 13, 14 age range. And ultimately, as they age, by the time they're 18 and they're leaving the house, the, the leash has already been taken off. They don't really even know it yet because you've just continued to, in an age-appropriate way, allow them more and more. If, if they get something wrong, if they, if, they, if they can't handle the freedom that they have, they lose some trust, you just, you know, you just bring back a little bit. You take it away from them just a little bit. They learn their lesson. And, and remember, your goal is though to get them out of the house. You know? That's the goal. <laughs> Okay, and so you, you, you gotta you gotta give them more freedoms again. You know, if they mess up their cell phone at, at thirteen, you can't just you're never having a f- cell phone until you're dead. You know, well, they're gonna have a cell phone when they're out of the house at nineteen, and so okay, re reinstitute that so while they're at the home, they could learn the appropriate use of the freedom of a cell phone wherever you decide where that is. You know, and so that was the idea that we learned. This revolutionized Tanya and I. The idea is, you know, there are going to be some, some things that, that are not appropriate at this age, but as they get older, of course, it will fall within that age range of freedom that they'll have. Right now, it's not appropriate, but at other times, as they get older, it would be appropriate. And so, Tanya and I use this all the time now, you know. I bet you know kids, too, that you just look at them and you're like, outside the cone, you know. I'll have to lean over and say to Tanya, the cone. And she's like, yep, yep. And it's just, and it's just kids who, who have too much, too much freedom. They have 14-year-old freedom, and they're only seven. You know what I mean? So they're the ones that are bossing their parents around, that, that sort of thing. You know? And it's not the kid's fault. It's the parent's fault. They're the ones that open the... It's the mom and the dad's fault that weren't doing the teaching and weren't doing the modeling and, and all that sort of thing. And, and as a dad, my job is to, is to model for them what life is to be like lived appropriately at 13 and 14. I can't say, do as I say, not as I do. You know, the mom is the teacher. I'm to model it. I, I, I'm to show them what it's, what it's like, you know? And so those of you who are parents in here, hopefully you remember this. This is good, okay? And maybe you know, uh-oh, our kids are seven, but they have 14-year-old freedoms. Well, yank it back. I mean, there's no, no time like the present, all right? Okay, make it hard now, or your life is going to be much harder later on. 
But maybe some of you are like, yeah, that's good. I'm going to use that. that. That's a good thing. Some of you, some of you are old, older parents, and you're like, oh, yeah, we did that with our kids. Or maybe you're saying, man, I wish someone would have told me that when I was a parent. That would have really helped, helped out with life. Right? But Paul is saying all of us as believers are to do this with younger Christians. Right? Let's take this out of the, the parenting world and take this into the, you know, the, the world of what we're talking about. He says, I'm a father. And so you guys are really young in your faith. And so I'm showing you, I'm modeling. You do this, and you, you read your Bible in the morning, and, and you, you pray every day, and, and, and then you do the same thing the next day. Memorize this verse. Memorize this verse. Okay? When we meet next week, you're going to say this verse to me. Okay? That's the modeling that Paul was doing. That's why we have platoons, uh, the small groups for, for men. That's why we have set-apart groups, small groups for women. That's why we have... Barnabas groups. Uh, that's why some of you are teachers in our kids' ministry up and down the hallway on Sunday mornings. You're mentors. You are modeling in front of people who are younger than you. Do this next. This is how you do it. This is how you do it when you're this age. And then when you're a little older, this is how you do it in this age. So every single one of you that's a believer in here tonight, you model the Christian life in front of somebody. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's other people that you know here. Maybe it's people you serve in ministry. Okay? You model before them what it's like to be this part. And Paul said, that's what I've done for you. I've modeled before you. So we have to move on here. Nurturing mom, love, care. I don't care about the mess. I don't care about the drama, the dirtiness. I came here to love and care. Secondly, modeling as a, as a father. And thirdly, the empathy, the sympathy of brothers. We're in this together. Look at verse, let's look at, look at verse 14. You know, I, mothers can only do so much nurturing. And, and dads can only do so much modeling. And, and parents can't take all the glory when their kids turn out great. And parents can't take all the blame when their kids turn out bad because they're humans, you know. And so in verse 14, it says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Now we're talking about brothers, brethren brothers and sisters in, in Christ. And here, Paul is saying it's the, the common suffering that we've experienced together that bonds us together. The suffering together has what's bonded us together. Paul knew about suffering. Paul experienced it. Paul got kicked out of this city. Like, they were in this together. You know, uh, military guys who go off to war together and a platoon comes back, those guys are bonded for life because they have experienced such an impactful, devastating uh, part of their life together. They experience crises together that no one would ever understand except for them. And so they're bonded together like that. Missionaries often experience that. They, they go off, and they didn't know each other, but they meet each other on the mission field. They, they fight spiritual battles together. They serve together. And oftentimes those missionaries are united for life because they, they lived life together so much they were bound together. And Paul says, yeah, you're, you're like that. You know, children that are in the, in the same family, you know your siblings, and you know the struggles that you went through in your family better than even your closest friends could understand your family. The financial difficulties or the emotional stresses or the relational problems in your family, even your best friends can't identify with you like your brothers and your sisters can. Christianity is to be like that. Christians are to be like that. 
united like brothers and sisters who say, yeah, I understand. We've been in this together. We're in this together. We'll get through this together. Brothers and sisters in, in Christianity are to be like that. You know, Jesus never promises that life is going to be easy as a Christian. Um, but that's the benefit of having brothers or sisters, the, the family, to help us get through these difficult moments in, in time. At Grace Community Church, when you join our membership, you've probably noticed our phraseology in our in kind of our, our church culture. We call it joining the family. And because... We try to stay away from the word membership only because membership has like weird connotations, you know, like secret handshakes, you know, and paying dues. Um, you know, some people are in, some people are out, you know. It, that's not what we mean by membership, but that's what we think of. And so that's why we call it joining the family because that is really what it is. It is people who are on the same page that want to unify together, bond together, be tied together, rely on each other and trust each other and thick and thin and, you know, sharing our friend necklaces and all these kind of, we're all together, we're together in, in this thing. Um, you've also maybe noticed that we, we call people who are not members at Grace, we call them friends of the family. Now, that's not a derogatory term, and that's not even a, that's not even a level down. There, there are friends that have done things for me that my family hasn't even done for me. There are, I, there are things that I'd probably do for my friends before I'd even do them for my family because we're close friends. But friendships can be broken primarily with stress. Stressors in life can break a friendship. And that can't happen with the family. Your mom is always your mom is always your mom. Your brother is always your brother, always your brother, always your brother, DNA brother. And so there's such great benefit in being together with brothers and sisters in a family that understand the difficulties of life so that we can get through things together. Let's finish out this family theme. We only have uh, three minutes here. Uh, verse 17, it says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while. Remember, they got kicked out of Thessalonica. Paul and Timothy and, and Silas did. Uh, in some translations, it says, Having been bereft of you. Um, having been taken away from you, the word there is kidnapped or orphaned. You know, he had been their, their mother. He had been their father. He had been their brother, and now it's all gone. He felt like he was orphaned from this family that, that he was a part of, and he missed it. And that's exactly what it's like for when a Christian is not a part of a Christian family, when they don't have the love and support of other Christians around them. It's like being orphaned. And often Christians who don't attend church speak in that kind of language um, of being alone, of nobody being with me, of, you know, it's, it's my personal relationship with Jesus. Well, they use those terms because they've been orphaned. Um, and Paul feels exactly like that. Finally, in verse 19, it says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? There is a great family reunion that is still coming at the rapture of the church where all Christians, the entire family, will, will all be together. Giant family reunion. You know, sometimes I get jealous of um, big families. I, we don't have a big family, either on my side or Tanya's side. I have one cousin. My kids only have one cousin, and that one is adopted. It has nothing to do with Tanya or I. I mean, we did our part, but 
other people in our family, there have been some uh, untimely death. There in decisions of other people in our family. You know, when I said I had one cousin, you're like, whoa. Because some of you go on family vacations and spend an entire week at family reunions. And I kind of, I, I wish we could do that. You know, I hear you eat food, play games, uh, you catch up on each other's life, you eat more food. I mean, it just sounds good to me to do that. Uh, but we don't have that. But we can look forward to a time when there will be, where there will be a great family reunion of everyone who is a believer, who is a Christian, will be raptured together, and Jesus will set up this giant dinner table at the millennial, beginning of the millennial kingdom, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It'll be one giant family. The Thessalonians will be there. You'll get to meet Jason. Say, hey, man, tell me about your garage. I think it's so cool. You know, we talked about you. We talked about you in church. And so that's something that you can look forward to as a great family reunion. And even if you don't have that closeness in your personal home family, our hope is at Grace Community Church, you would, you would be inching closer towards that. Whereas you join small groups and, and serve in ministry, you begin to get to know each other in a familial way. But in, in the future, it will even be better than this. It will be eternity with brothers and sisters. Well, that's something to look forward to. It's 8 o'clock. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for this one hour that you've given us, and we pray that uh, your word was encouraging to our hearts. We pray that it would help us to live a life honoring to you tomorrow, particularly in the way that we follow through in our calling regarding the Great Commission. I pray that you would help us as your followers to uh, be sacrificial in our nurturing and in our modeling and in our brother and sistering of other people. And so we ask for your help to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.